Welcome to Illinois Family Spotlight, a conversation about faith, family, freedom, the state of Illinois, our nation, and conservative action. Here's David Smith and Monty Larrick. Thanks for making Illinois Family Spotlight part of your day. Lori Higgins with the Illinois Family Institute says, the National Education Association has formally adopted every radical position of the Democratic Party. Lori was recently interviewed by Sandy Rios during Sandy's American Family Radio program. Public schools in the United States have been undergoing an assault and propaganda that uh, should have shocked the nation a long time ago. But we're going to update you on it today. No one knows more about that and the progression of it than my next guest. Lori Higgins is the Illinois Family Institute cultural affairs writer. Would you say now that that's typical of American public schools? Oh, it's typical of American public schools. And one of the problems is a lot of parents don't know that it's going on. Here in the Chicago public school districts, they started teaching about homosexuality in kindergarten several years ago. So the problem is either that people are not paying attention or that they are and they're dismissing it as unimportant. They dismiss, well, that's just this little event, that's just this little teaching in this one course. But the way cultural change happens isn't through huge dramatic events in an instant. It happens through the accretion of little things that we ignore and then they build and then they build and they build. And the third reason is that conservatives are largely cowardly. So they don't want to address anything that if they do, they might be labeled a hater. Even though we are told in scripture, for those of us who are Christians, we're going to be hated. And so we've let this slide, and now we have this trans juggernaut taking place. And so we're addressing it in kindergarten. Lori, just one detail before we move to the broader issue. I recall after I left Illinois, uh, Barack Obama was a senator there, as you well remember, and he was very active in laying the groundwork and pushing through some radical sex ed in the schools there. Do you remember the details of that? Well, I do remember his mandates, which not only went to the Department of Education, but to every department, saying that when the word sex appears in, and we're going to see this again in the Equality Act, but where the sex word sex appears, for instance, in the Civil Rights Act of 1964, and Title IX of the Education Amendments uh, of 1972, that that word should be interpreted as as inclusive of gender identity, which is just this made-up concept that the left has invented in order to normalize biological sex rejection. So he sent those out to every department, and they were, in effect, mandates. Fortunately, President Trump has rescinded those. But if the school is going to present resources that affirm, espouse, embody leftist ideas about sexuality, they had a pedagogical obligation to include dissenting resources because that's what education does, is it fosters critical thinking, and it does it by introducing kids to diverse resources. Let's move now to um, a really current update on the National Education Association. You and I have discussed this, of course, before, and I always have to say in these conversations Uh, because I've been around the block for a long time here, that I remember in the 1980s when the National Education Association began to slip into the advocacy of homosexuality at the time. 
and they created um, uh, a, a, at the time a DVR called It's Elementary. Uh, and it, I watched the whole thing. It was shocking because they were training teachers how to get around parents, how to mainstream this, how to how to deceive. Uh, and then, of course, they were being very blatant, but not quite as uh, blatant as they're being now. We found out years later that the head of the Education Association then was a uh, was a gay man who was not out. And so it became kind of the focus of the NEA, National Education Association, uh, early on, and they became more and more aggressive. But now I think they've they've reached all-time heights or lows, depending on your perspective. You just wrote an article on what they have just done at their uh, annual meeting, I think, in July. And so just tell us about what's going on there now, Lori. So this was at their representative assembly, which is... Oh, somewhere between six and seven thousand members. That's not the entire NEA. Well, they had 160 business items, some of which now are referred to committee for study. But these are some of the new business items that passed the NEA. So some people, I think it's made the press that they affirmed a fundamental right to abortion and opposes all attacks on the right to choose. They've also taken a position to call the Trump administration to end detention of illegal immigrants, including an end to ICE raids. They call for the government to accept responsibility for the destabilization of Central America that's responsible for the increase of migrants at our border. They have, they're pushing for reparations. They are making Equality Act a top legislative priority. They want to incorporate the concept of white fragility into NEA trainings, development literature, etc., And for those who haven't heard the term, I call it a racist leftist term, which mocks, criticizes, and silences white people who disagree with the assumptions of what some people call critical race theory or teaching for social justice. Here's one of the, we were talking about homosexuality. Here's one of the troubling ones. They want to create model legislative language that state affiliates can use to lobby for a K through 12 cross-content curriculum that is LGBTQ inclusive. In other words, it's not enough that we teach about homosexuality and transgenderism in through social and emotional learning, anti-bullying resources, and health class. They want it in all content areas, which will make it impossible for parents to opt their child out, which is, of course, the goal. And they want to increase the gay-straight alliance clubs in schools and the participation of their advisors. It's a whole a, a range of problematic. They want to promote Black Lives Matter week of action in pre-K through 12 schools. Oh, they have a position on climate change also. In other words, it's every radical position of the Democratic Party is now what the NEA has formally adopted as business items. You know, what's interesting here, we should say, Laurie, that the National Education Association, at least it was and probably still is, the very the very largest, most uh, well-funded lobbying entity in Washington. At least it was. Uh, my human rights campaign may have eclipsed them by now, I don't know. But it's a, it was the, the professional organization that teachers pretty much had to belong to, or there was a lot of ostracism and trouble because then you didn't get protections for mistreatment in the workplace if you didn't agree to join and pay dues. And then the dues were paid, were spent on, you know, helping elect radical candidates. So it was like a, it's not a circular firing squad, but it's a circular, you know, helping squad, I guess. Something's not right here. And all of our children who are rebelling and the mobs we see in Antifa, 
something's not right here. And so Lori Higgins is my guest this morning from the Illinois Family Institute. Lori, you just wrote an article about this whole business of the teaching of social justice warriors in public school. Explain that to us and uh, explain to us why we're seeing what we're seeing in our streets and in, our, in the halls of Congress. Yes. Well, my observations are that this comes out of what's being taught in public schools and has been for a long time. When Antifa and Black Lives Matter appeared on the horizon, people were saying, conservatives were saying, oh my gosh, this is the result of what they've learned in college. It does not start in college. I left Deerfield High School 11 years ago. This stuff was being taught at Deerfield High School then. I had a student once, and I'm telling this anecdote because it's representative, not because it's an isolated incident, but I worked with a student on her paper, and she came out of what was called American Studies, that's Integrated Social Studies in English, and when I finished reading her paper, I said, wow, you have kind of a negative view of America, and she said, oh yeah, by the time first semester in this class ended, I hated America and hated being an American. And that's because of the infusion of this critical social theory, critical race theory, critical teaching for social justice, which divides America into the groups that are supposedly oppressors and the ones who are oppressed. Of course, if you're white, male, and heterosexual, you are at the top of the oppression food chain. And, And it teaches people that their lot in life cannot improve unless... Those who are in the oppressor class have a sufficient degree of self-flagellation, acknowledging endlessly their part. And, and the parts that we play, it, it's just a matter of identity politics. You can feel no superiority. You can treat no one any differently. But the mere fact of being white or male or heterosexual means you are an oppressor. And that's what has come now to roost in Congress in people like AOC. Yes, and on the streets and Antifa and, uh, you know, really in the discourse of journalists on television. It's really right. amazing. It's just stunning. It really is. And by the way, uh, this article that uh, Lori has just written about this, we'll also put it on our Facebook page because I really think you should be reading it. It's Strange Bedfellows, Illegal Immigrants and American Hating Social Justice Warriors. The other way we're seeing it affect this affect our nation in profound ways uh, is uh, elections, Lori. We've got some, we've got a 2020 presidential election coming up. We've got uh, this incredible hatred of Donald Trump uh, for his so-called racism. He's he's all of the things you just said. He's a white male, uh, and uh, he fits perfectly uh, as to be the object of this social warrior justice. We also have just confused thinking. And when I think of that, I think an illustration is um, Mayor Pete Buttigieg, who's running, I'm sure you're very familiar with him since he's right next door to Chicago, uh, but Pete uh, has introduced another form of confusion. Let's just listen to what he has to say, and then I, I'd love your comments on it. Here it is. It's hard to face the truth that there were times in my life when if you had shown me exactly what it was inside me that made me gay, I would have cut it out with a knife. When I came out in 2015, it was for the simple reason that I was finally ready. I had been wrestling with my sexuality for years. And if I had not deployed to Afghanistan, I might never have found the courage to come out. But there's something that happens to you when you write a letter and put it in an envelope and write just in case on the outside and leave it where your family can find it if they have to. It forces you to realize that you only get one life. You only get to be one person. My marriage to Chaston has made me a better man. 
And yes, Mr. Vice President, it has moved me closer to God. Struggle is not over when transgender troops, ready to put their lives on the line for this country, have their careers threatened with ruin one tweet at a time by a commander in chief who himself pretended to be disabled in order to get out of serving when it was his turn. So next time a reporter asked me if America is ready for a gay president, I'm gonna tell the truth. I'm gonna give him the only answer that I can think of that's honest, and it's this. I trust my fellow Americans, but at the end of the day, there's exactly one way to find out for sure. All right, so uh, Laurie, he's your neighbor, and of course he's, we heard what he just claimed. I'd love your, your thoughts about that. Well, my concern about this, of course, was his election would go even further in terms of uh, compelling Americans to view homosexuality as not a moral issue. His statement, he's closer to God, is simply deceit. You, you can't be closer to God by affirming something which God abhors, and what God abhors is homosexual activity. It, it's not about people. This is about activity, and these are about moral propositions. When he, says, when he talks about the acceptance people should feel toward their own feelings, their own homoerotic attraction, I would ask him, would he apply that principle consistently to every subjective internal desire that humans have. When the left continually hurls the epithet hater at Christians, particularly, what they, the distinction they're failing to make is a distinction between disapproval of volitional activity and disapproval or hatred of persons. Most people in America, including most Christians, can deeply love and enjoy the company and admire the good traits of people who affirm homosexuality while still believing that homosexual activity is wrong. Most of us do it every day. And I think the left, uh, you know, they project their hatred of people whose beliefs are different onto conservatives. But most conservative Christians love people who believe differently than they do, and we do it every day. Uh, but, of course, Pete has a big megaphone. He has, anyway. I think he's receded a little bit, but the deception is just, it's a continuing propaganda machine, but this one coming... Uh, coming at Americans, and I think their people are re- willing to receive it because they've been propagandized in public schools. I want to move to another story. Uh, this is one that's been big in the news. I know you're familiar with it. It has to do with uh, the U.S. soccer team. Let's listen to this one. You guys are the first openly gay couple to be on the cover of the body issue. What does that mean to you? Neither of us really want to just do things and be like, we're the gay couple. Um, I'm probably, I'm more... Of like the out, <laughs> the out there gay one, <laughs> but it's like it to have this really um, unique vehicle to actually do that and to you know celebrate who we are in our sport, but also the fact that you know we'll be the first gay couple is, is pretty special. I mean, it's pretty amazing actually to think about, especially yeah. in the times we're in. Having a gay couple on there, hopefully, it just becomes the norm. You know, you want it to not be an issue. You know, I think and that's for us to be on it is the first step in that direction. Megan Rapino and her partner, Sue Bird, the basketball player. And, of course, we don't need to say too much. I've certainly talked enough about Megan Rapino in the last few days. But, Laurie, I'd be curious to know about what you think about all of that. Well, I, I want to say that I feel very sorry for some of the women on the soccer team who had to contend with everything that this young woman has said and done since they won the World Cup. We still are not talking about, and we never have really talked about, the foundational assumptions that undergird 
the debate and the controversy about homosexuality. And that's what's lost. The left has learned that strategically it works just to call people names, and then you won't have to say, what is homosexuality? So, and I don't mean, I'm not talking here about what causes it, which is another really important discussion to have, because even leftist psychotherapists acknowledge that sexual molestation can result in either, they call it sexual orientation confusion or homoerotic attraction. I actually posted an article from Psychology Today on that issue from not a conservative therapist. So that is an important issue. But what I'm talking about is what constitutes homosexuality? Is it like race? In what ways is homosexuality per se analogous to race? Zero. But they don't want to have that discussion because comparing it to race has worked for them strategically. So that's the discussion that conservatives should continue to push. Well, what is homosexuality? Because all it is is subjective erotic internal feelings and erotic attraction. And now we'll see this. Well, I think if we're going to talk about the APA, we'll see that because they're trying to say that polyamory is now a sexual orientation. Yes, and we're going to get to that in just a second. I did want to point to something encouraging, Lori, and that's that Harris poll, which is a pro-gay poll, really. In 2016, 63% of millennials considered themselves allies of the LGBT movement. And we know why, because we've just talked about it. But the number plunged to 45% last year. Lori Higgins with Illinois Family Institute and Sandy Rios with American Family Radio during this edition of Illinois Family Spotlight. Their conversation will continue after this. This is Jerry Boyer of Town Hall Finance for townhall.com. Recently, Democrat presidential candidate Pete Buttigieg decided to try his hand at Bible application. He argued that the federal government should prohibit any wage lower than $15 an hour. And he quoted the book of Proverbs, whoever oppresses the poor taunts their maker. Well, when it comes to failure, that's what we call a twofer. It was both bad theology and bad economics. First, bad theology. The Bible is a very long book, and it does not specify a specific wage level ever. The New Testament parable of the workers seems to argue in favor of mutually agreed upon wages, not mandated wages. And then we have Mayor Pete's bad economics. There's no doubt that a $15 per hour minimum wage would create a spike in unemployment, and the hardest hit would be the children of the working class and the poor. Let's hope the nation is not fooled by either bad economics or bad theology. I'm Jerry Boyer. Hello, I'm David Smith, the executive director of Illinois Family Institute, a state-based Christian pro-life and pro-family public policy organization. I want to invite you to join us as we seek to be salt and light to a dark and rapidly decaying culture. You can do that in a number of ways. For example, you can join our email list to get timely alerts and great cultural commentaries. You can like our Facebook page, follow us on Twitter, listen to our podcasts, and subscribe to our YouTube channel. You can attend one or more of the special events and forums we host in different parts of the state. We do all these things to encourage and equip Christians in Illinois. You see, we need you to help us fulfill our mission to boldly bring a biblical perspective to public policy. Our faith requires us to be bold, speak truthfully, and love our neighbors. Join us. Visit IllinoisFamily.org to learn more. Again, that is IllinoisFamily.org.
Thanks for joining Illinois Family Spotlight. During this segment, Lori Higgins with the Illinois Family Institute discusses troubling ideas on sexual orientation being advocated by the American Psychological Association. Lori was recently interviewed by Sandy Rios during Sandy's morning program on American Family Radio. Uh, Dr. Robert Spitzer was uh, very much a central figure in the whole morphing between the listing of homosexuality as a, as a mental disorder in what was called the, the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, for the APA. Dr. Spitzer was the chairman of the American Psychiatric Association's task force, which oversaw the DSM. And in, uh, I believe it was in, 19, in 1980, when they released it, Now I may have the year not quite right here, the gay activist stormed the floor of the meeting of the APA that year and so intimidated uh, the psychiatrists there who were, you know, not quite as far along uh, in, in embracing them as they are now. And so uh, they intimid- basically managed. Uh, there's a whole account of this on NPR. Actually, it's fascinating. Uh, they uh, managed to intimidate the psychiatrists there to actually change and alter their diagnostic and statistical manual of mental disorders and remove homosexuality from that. And uh, Dr. Spitzer embraced that. Uh, and then in 2003, I think it was, uh, Dr. Spitzer did a study of, uh, he came across uh, a, a group of ex-gay men, I think it was Exodus International, got acquainted with them, and he proceeded then to do a study of whether men could actually come out of the lifestyle, and he published it in 2003. The reason I know as much about this as I know is I interviewed Dr. Spitzer in 2003 or 2004 after this had just come out. I'll never forget that. My conversation with him was the vitriol that was aimed at him uh, for write, for publishing this paper and uh, how disconcerting it was to him because his peers were turning against him. Uh, Lori, I guess you can relate to that. But that's the kind of the story of Dr. Spitzer. But you now are have written about a recent development in the APA, and so that's that's what I look to you to tell us about right now. Well, yes. I mean, you've pointed out how little credibility the APA should have after the that was 1973 change in the DSM, which, by the way, on NPR, people can read or listen to. It's called 81 Words. They should look for. Just Google that. and It'll be really fascinating. But now the APA, which I did not know, had a section called Division 44, which is the Society for the Psychology of Sexual Orientation and Gender Diversity. This began in 1985 by homosexuals within the APA, and they, but they now have within there a task force on consensual non-monogamy, which for those who've been reading the press in the past few years is another term for polyamory, which is the romantic and sexual attraction and involvement with multiple people at the same time. And so the whole point of this task force is to normalize polyamory. They want to remove the stigma attached to it. And so stigma is, I would say, it's a a negative term just to refer to disapproval. So anytime a culture disapproves of something, we would, I mean, we would never say, oh, gosh, we got to remove the, the stigma attached to pedophilia or hebophilia. That's, you know, different ages of children. They've divided it now pedophilia into. And so they want to remove the stigma in order that it will be approved of by the culture. 
And so they've created this task force, which if you go to my article online, I took the whole task force's advisory board and did a very brief one or two section uh, sentence description of each of the characters on this. And they're all people who affirm sexual perversion in one way or another. They actually describe the task force as they want to promote awareness and inclusivity about, and this is their description, people who practice polyamory, open relationships, swinging, and relationship anarchy. That's their term. And they view polyamory as a sexual orientation. What's important about that is conservatives have long been warning other conservatives about the dangers of including the term sexual orientation in anti-discrimination policies and laws because since sexual orientation really refers to the direction in which your sexual interests are, are impelled, that we knew that it would eventually come to include other things. Polyamory is one. All the paraphilias, those are all the forms of sexual deviance humans can experience. And that's exactly what's happened. And I want to point out one person in particular. His name is Richard Sprott. If you go to my article online, um, he recently presented at a bondage discipline sadomasochism convention in Cleveland, a workshop called SCAT Beyond Brown. Well, SCAT refers to feces play. So this is the person that is one of the people who is on the task force to normalize polyamory. Lori, when I was a president of CWA in the early 2000s, I remember uh, warning people that polyamory was coming next. Uh, these other things I never even dreamed about. Uh, but polyamory, because the uh, the sexual anarchists then were telling us, they were pushing for that even then, and pedophilia too. Right. Uh, so I, may, may, correct me if I'm wrong, you are saying that the American Psychological Association is actually embracing and pushing and has formed a task force to mainstream and normalize and bring under the protection of sexual orientation laws uh, these kinds of behavior. Exactly. And multiple people on the advisory council who are professors, and, and but some of them are just BDSM activists, multiple people affirm other forms of sexual deviance. And these are the people. So I ask the question, in what universe is feces play considered psychologically healthy? And these are the people who are, have decided that polyamory is psychologically healthy and good for society. One thing that's important is the whole marriage debate, when we were having the marriage debate before Obergefell, I was on a radio program with the ACL spokesperson in Chicago, and, and he kept saying, marriage is the union of any two people who love each other. And I repeatedly asked him, why two people? Of course, conservatives know why marriage is the union of two people, because there are two sexes. But now with the trans ideology, you, you know, that, that uh, proposition is out the window. And so the decision in Obergefell to separate marriage from both biological sex and from reproductive potential made it inevitable that we would move toward an affirmation of plural unions, including obviously polyamory. Because if marriage has no re connection to sex and no, rec no connection to reproductive potential, there's no reason to limit it to two people. There's no rational, coherent reason. So it's not just that polyamory became, the acceptance of it became possible, it made it inevitable. So people are hearing this story about the APA and they're saying, you know, well, who cares what a group of doctors decide and 
that's not us, and that's not how we feel, and that's not how Americans feel. What possible effect can the decision of the APA to embrace and um, promote this, uh, what will it have on the American culture? I mean, there's a couple of really important things about that. As we have increasingly moved away from religion, particularly Christianity, as a source and arbiter of morality and reality, and as, we're, as the trans ideology has moved away from even hard science, so the woefully unstable social sciences have assumed some sort of exalted position as the arbiter of truth, reality, and morality in American culture, and the APA is hugely influential. And so... Their ideas are going to percolate through the culture and change the culture. And I also want to say, this is what conservatives do all the time. We say, oh my gosh, look at that weird thing on the fringe. We don't have to pay attention to that because it's on the fringe. And they pay no attention, and the fringes move into the center, and our center will not hold. So, Lori, I know that in your article about uh, the National Education Association, which we talked about uh, earlier in the show, you have a suggestion about a solution there. And I want to talk about that, but let's just talk about solutions. I know that you and I think about it and it almost, it's like, it's so overwhelming uh, that it's hard to imagine that we could do anything to orchestrate a stop to this. I have some thoughts about it, but I want to know what you think. Well, here are the two, I would say if I had to, I mean, people need to speak out. So, but my two main recommendations for Christians, one, get a spine. We have been promise that we're going to be persecuted for our faith. We're supposed to take up our cross daily. We're supposed to consider it joy when we encounter trials for Christ in his kingdom. And we do, I'm talking in broad generalities, there's people like you who do honor all those expectations and welcome that kind of persecution. But for the most part, Christians in America have retreated intentionally fled from even the most minor persecution, like having a friend mad at them. We have to recover a theology of persecution and welcome that. And the, and that's why church leaders have to teach that, but church leaders are largely cowardly. So, And the other thing is, we must pull our children out of public schools. We need to still be engaged as Christians. It's a matter of stewardship. Our money is being used to teach evil ideas to children, but we need to pull our own children out. And the, But many parents, there's one wage earner in the family, or there are two people, and they're working just to make ends meet. They can't afford to send their kids to Christian private schools, and they can't homeschool. Churches must use money, make it available as a fund for their church members to send their kids to private schools, and or create Christian private schools that are affordable. This should be a mission field right now. We can't have our kids taught by people who don't recognize that men and women are different. You also talk about retirees, Lori. You have some really, uh, you have some strong words about that. So say say a word about what retirees could actually and should actually be doing. Yes. Retirees should not retire from their job if they're in good health and then just golf. They need to be working for the kingdom. And this is such a fantastic resource. I know lots of retirees who are healthy. They have huge kinds of skills available, what they've, organizational skills, knowledge, wisdom. They're mature in their faith. They should be working to help create schools, 
to teach in schools, to volunteer their time, to to come up with you know plans, be creative. Uh, you know, John Piper, it's, it's I called it legendary admonition. Wrote a piece. I mean, he had this little recommendation to retirees, and he gave an example, saying, "Do you want that to be what your last record is when you stand before the Lord after you die to say, wow, I spent a lot of time on my boat and collecting shells.'" And I would say I want to encourage retirees to reach out and figure out what they can do, and churches need to ask them to do that. There's also a problem with loneliness among our retirees, so it would solve two problems at once, or multiple problems. Yeah, no, no, you're absolutely spot on. Sandy Rios with American Family Radio, and Lori Higgins with the Illinois Family Institute. Our thanks to Sandy and AFR for this interview. Please join the Reverend Franklin Graham and the Illinois Family Institute for the Faith, Family, and Freedom Banquet, Friday, November 1st at the Tenley Park Convention Center. For tickets, click events at illinoisfamily.org or call 708-781-9328. Please support the work of the Illinois Family Institute and Illinois Family Action. Tell a friend about Illinois Family Spotlight. Until next time, God bless. Thank you for listening to Illinois Family Spotlight. For more information, please visit us at ifiaction.org and look for us on Facebook and Twitter. If you would like to email us questions or comments, please do so at feedback at ifiaction.org. Until next time, stay engaged and keep your eyes on the prize.